and ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we will be considering verses 14 to 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 21, and we'll be continuing in our discussion of the affirmation of faith. Today is Father's Day, south of the border. It's not just Father's Day. It's also called Juneteenth Day. And, you know, as Matt prayed earlier, this day ought to be a joyful day, and yet, for many, it is a sad day, a painful day. In fact, one young lady I know had trouble every Father's Day. She couldn't come to church because it was bringing back too many painful memories. And it is against that backdrop of broken relationships that bring before us the reality of our broken relationship with God that lies at the root of our own broken relationships that we hear the good news of our affirmation on salvation. This is what we believe. Although God could have left all humans in their sin and guilt, He freely and graciously chose to deliver us from our ruined condition. He provided His eternal Son to become human in order to save us. Christ lived a sinless life of obedience that fully pleased the Father. His obedience culminated in His death by which He bore the penalty which is justly ours, thus satisfying the demands of God's moral law and turning away the wrath of God that we deserve. God signified His approval of Christ's work by raising Him from the dead and exalting Him as Lord in heaven. On the basis of this work of Christ on our behalf, God accepts as perfectly righteous all those who trust in Christ who died and rose again. We come to believe in Christ because God does a special work of grace to overcome our sinful disposition and draw us to Himself. And God will continue this work of grace so that all who have been drawn to faith in Christ will be preserved in faith and salvation and will enter into the perfect conditions of eternal life in the age to come. Now, the story of Hosea, which was summarized in Hosea 3, gives us a magnificent picture of God's unfailing love that refuses to give up on us. It is that which undergirds and supports this doctrinal statement. Chapter 1, we are told that God commanded Hosea 1, God commanded Hosea to love a promiscuous woman, love a woman whom he knew, who had, well, frankly, an unsavory reputation in the community. He married her, but she betrayed his love by fooling around and running away with another man. As a result, she debased herself and was sold into slavery. We come to chapter 3. God told Hosea 
go again, love a woman, love your wife. And in grace, Hosea purchased her out of slavery and brought her home. And as Hosea 3 verse 4 says, it is meant to picture God's love and grace toward his people. But in that love lies a tension. How could a righteous, holy God who hates sin with all the passion of his being tolerate sinful creatures like you and me? This is where this passage comes in, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 to 21. It speaks of God's act of salvation in terms of reconciliation. And this passage is part of a larger section in which Paul is defending his apostolic ministry. Here, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he is describing his ministry and the content of his teaching in terms of God's reconciling work in the person of Jesus Christ. So let's read from verse 14 to verse 21. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in this passage, Paul confronts us with this astounding reality that God, who is the offended party, who ought to be the one passing judgment, hurling his wrath upon us, instead of doing that, God has initiated reconciliation. You see that in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. See, ever since Adam and Eve broke their covenant with God in the garden, we have become proud, self-willed rebels, seeking to overthrow God's rightful authority. It's futile, but We still want to overthrow God. And God has every right to be angry with us then. Because we have repaid His kindness with disobedience. 
Instead of living under the authority of the one who has given us life, we have lived to please ourselves. Perverse and ungrateful wretches that we are. And so we stand under God's righteous judgment. That's the reality Paul speaks of in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And because we are evil people who do evil things, we have nothing to look forward to but judgment. But the wonder of this text is that God has acted to heal the breach between God and man through Christ. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. But the question is, how does that happen? See, God's wrath cannot be turned aside until our offense against him is removed. And at first glance, just like a German poet would say, it, it looks easy. God just needs to forgive. And as that German poet would say, Dieu pardonne, c'est son métier. In English, God will forgive. It's his job. I mean, that's what Paul says in verse 19. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Except there's one problem. If God were simply to sweep our sins under the rug of the universe, he would be unjust. He would no longer be a holy, righteous God. He would be a God not worth trusting because he would be perpetrating a a humongous injustice. He would not be true to his character. So how can God forgive while remaining true to his character? Well, the solution to that tension is found in verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The answer, very simply, is that God provided Jesus Christ to be our substitute and representative. And we see the substitution very clearly. Verse 14, one has died for all. Verse 15, for him who for their sake died and was raised. We're familiar with that language. Jesus died in our place, taking the punishment of death that we rightly deserved. And in dying in our place, he also suffered the wrath of God in our place. So that on the cross, we hear him cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was the object of God's wrath. He who with the Father shared a love that is more than love for all eternity became the object of his beloved Father's wrath. 
for our sakes so that the wrath of God would be appeased. And by that sacrifice, the demands of God's justice are satisfied. And his resurrection signals that his sacrifice is accepted. God is no longer angry with those who trust in Jesus Christ. He has actually forgiven us. He no longer holds our sins against us. In the language of Micah, he has cast our sins in the depths of the sea. But there's more in this text. Jesus also died as our representative. See, we are born sinners because Adam was our representative. And that's why God the Son became man, so that he might be the second Adam. We talked about this last week. Representing those who would trust in him. And just as we were united with Adam at birth, or from birth, you might say, we are united with Christ through faith. You can think of it this way. Um, news came out that Toronto will be hosting the World Cup in 2026, right? If you caught that. We live in Guelph. If this were Toronto, people would react more because that means more traffic. <laughs> I'm learning what illustrations work here in Guelph. <laughs> and, and for many of you probably, it's soccer, not hockey. Who cares? But for, for the women's national team, the Canadian women's national team, it's a big deal. Okay? They, they're world champions. They're number one or number two, depending on the year. And the men's the Canadian men's soccer team is actually going to the World Cup this year, I hear. And that guarantees that they'll be, the, the fact that North America is hosting means that Canada's also going to be in the World Cup in 2026. But to go to the point, whatever happens to the Canadian men's national team at the World Cup, Canadians can legitimately say whether they care about soccer or not, we won a game, or we lost a game. Because the Canadian men's national team represents Canada. They are, for the purposes of the World Cup, Canada. And this is what Paul is talking about here. That we are united with Christ. Anything that happens to Jesus happens to us. And vice versa. And here in verse, nine, uh, verse 21, he speaks of a great exchange that takes place through our union with Christ. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's that for our sake speaks of substitution, but that in him... Speaks of representation, of our union with Jesus Christ. What does it mean? Well, Mark Seyfried tries to explain it this way. Sin has to do not merely with our works, 
but with our whole person in guilt and rebellion, condemned and enslaved. Pause for a moment. That's you and me outside of Jesus Christ. Not just sinners. We are in sin. We are sin. What does God do? God made Christ to be what we are in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Paul thus follows his opening allusion to Christ's cross with an allusion to Christ's resurrection. And here's the wonderful truth. Christ was made what we are in order that we might become what He is in His resurrected life. Salvation consists in the translation of our being from the reality of sin that has possessed us to the reality of God's righteousness in Christ. God, with His placement of Christ into our being, picks us up in Christ's death and sweeps us into Christ's life. The communication between God and the human being that constitutes salvation begins here. In Christ's taking our place, not in our seeking God. See, it's such a wonderful reality that we are united with Christ through faith. And it might sound very airy-fairy according to Mar the way Mark Seifried explains it, but I want you to look at verse 14 and 15 in the way Paul fleshes it out. He says, in Christ's death, we died with him. So he says that one has died for all, therefore all have died. In Jesus' death on the cross, we died with him. And by the same token, in his resurrection, we rise with him. That's why it says, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And that's the picture that baptism gives us, isn't it? We are dunked into the water to say that we died with Christ. But we don't leave a person there, do we? That would be murder. <laughs> Take him up. Because we're saying that he didn't just die with Jesus Christ. He also rose with Jesus Christ. So that we need to recognize that no one for whom Jesus died was left behind in the grave. They die with him. They rise with him. In other words, Jesus dies for those who are united to him through faith. As Jesus himself would say in John chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. And I want you to look there. I don't want to just show it on the screen. John chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. This is Jesus speaking of his title as a good shepherd. John 10, 14 and 15. If I can only find it. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. 
See, this is the wonder of Christ's redemptive work. That he who made the heavens and the earth went to the cross with his people in mind, with you and me in mind. That he who hated sin with all the passion of his holy character deliberately went to the cross to become sin for you and me. Thinking of me when he went to the cross. No wonder Paul says the love of Christ constrains us because he is so astounded by the reality that Christ died for me. He knows that this is a love beyond our wildest dreams. And the resurrection of Jesus signals that his sacrifice is accepted. But there's more to it than that. Let us recognize that the crucifixion of Jesus was just as much an injustice as if God had simply swept our sins under the rug of the universe. Because Jesus is described in 2 Corinthians 5, go back there, as the one who knew no sin. So in raising Jesus from the dead, God is correcting an injustice. It is his declaration that Jesus is righteous. You crucified him for treason. You crucified him for blasphemy. God declares Jesus is righteous because he is the king. How do you declare the king guilty of treason? He's just told the truth. How do you declare God blasphemous? You don't. He truly is God. So his resurrection is his vindication. And here's the marvelous thing. Because Jesus is our representative. Then the declaration upon Jesus that he is righteous carries over to you and me. Because we are united with him through faith. So if, by some major miracle, the Canadian men's soccer team becomes the champion of the World Cup in Dubai, Canadians who never played soccer, who don't even know the difference between soccer and football, can say, we are world champions, even if you've never been on a soccer field soccer pitch. Why? Because they did it for you. In the same way, we are not simply forgiven. You see, if we were just forgiven by God, we'd be at zero. You'd be declared innocent. But God does more than declare us innocent. God declares us as righteous as Jesus Because not only did he die the death we deserve, he lived the life that we could not live, the life that fully pleases the Father. 
Imagine that. The righteousness of Jesus, who fully pleased the Father, is credited to us. So we are accepted by God as pleasing to Him when He looks at you and me. He looks beyond our failures. He sees the righteousness of Christ so that we will never be cast off, never be rejected. That's why we can approach the throne of grace with boldness and confidence. Because Christ is our righteousness. And that's why the gospel is such good news. Our standing before God is not dependent on our reputation with people or our performance. In the first place, even at our best, we are still sinners. And our best works are tainted by our sin. Nonetheless, God is reconciled to us because Christ paid for the sin that stands between us and God. Our sin will never stand in the way. God is reconciled to us and the righteousness of Christ is credited to us. When he looks at us, he sees Jesus, our representative, our righteousness. Because at the heart of union with Christ is that Christ himself is the gift that we receive through faith. Faith which we rightly define as the empty hand stretched out, receiving and resting on Jesus for salvation. The wonder of the gospel is that in Christ, we have a new identity. And it's so important that we grasp this truth. Paul Tripp observes, many believers, blind to what they have been given in Christ, run from relationship to relationship, job to job, location to location, and church to church, searching for identity. Believers who don't understand the right here, right now, blessings of God's grace, spend themselves into hopeless debt in search of identity. Parents who fail to understand the now-ism of the gospel, that is to say, we now enjoy the benefits of salvation, even if we only enjoy it now and not yet. The nowism of the gospel of justifying grace put the burden of their identity on their children. A terrible burden for a child to bear. Pastors, forgetting the gospel that they preach, ask for, a, for ministry to give them identity and end up beaten down, discouraged, and burned out. And friends, I've seen that. Teenagers, unaware of the present benefits of the gospel of grace they have been taught, experience all kinds of anxiety and make all kinds of regrettable decisions in search of identity. Christian men forgetting their vertical identity, feign strong personality, big muscle, and domineering macho masculinity. Seminary students who are at school to study the gospel attach their identity to theological knowledge and biblical literacy. It is sad 
to think about how much gospel identity amnesia lives in the church, weakening its function and witness. It is a sweet gift that in God's justifying grace, we are blessed with the most wonderful and stable identity one could ever hope for. This identity will never fail us, shame us, or be taken away. Look at that identity that we have in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Imagine that. We are the people of God, the children of God, agents of reconciliation, representing Jesus, the Messiah. And that means that for our part, reconciliation means that we submit to the rightful authority of God over us. It is the reversal of our rebellion. And it also happens because we have been united with Christ in His death and resurrection. Look at verse 14 and 15. Union with Christ brings about a change in our affections. That's why Paul begins verse 14 with, for the love of Christ compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And that reconciliation takes place because the awesome reality of Christ's self-giving love grips and enthralls us to live for him. Where before we took the love of Christ expressed on the cross for granted, or even rejected it. We have had our eyes opened to the immeasurable depths of Christ's love that compels our own love. Because when you're loved by someone this magnificent, you cannot help but love him back. You cannot help but value him above everything else. See, the love of Christ reverses our narcissistic determination to live for ourselves. And that compelling love of Jesus Christ liberates us from our self-centered desire to please ourselves. As Paul says, instead, we long to please Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. And so we submit to His authority because we realize that not only does he deserve our obedience because he is king, we also recognize that his rule over us is for our good, and that is genuine reconciliation. It's no longer a forced obedience that sometimes our kids give, right? Oh, I'll do it. I'm sitting down, but really, in my mind, I'm, in my heart, I'm standing up. <laughs> no, no, it's different. And Paul himself is an example of this change. Notice what happens. Verse 16. Before his conversion, he thought a crucified Messiah was blasphemous. So he would say, from now on, verse 16, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. See, when Jesus revealed himself to Paul, on the road to Damascus, 
he realized he was mistaken. Confronted with the glory of Christ, Paul was struck blind. And yet, you know the reality behind his blindness? He might have been struck physically blind, but for the first time, he was seeing the truth of who Jesus is. Paul experienced what he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. It's one of my favorite passages. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the wonder of conversion. And Paul deliberately echoes Genesis 1-3. God said, let there be light, in order to signify that conversion involves nothing less than a new creation. And again, the amazing thing is that this new creation came into existence through the resurrection of Jesus. So that in faith union with Christ, we have also become new creation. That's verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus rose into the life of the new creation, bringing about the new creation, so that you and I, even now, have new life, the life of the new creation. So that means that the reconciliation Jesus accomplished isn't just personal salvation. It also has cosmic ramifications. Jesus has removed the curse of sin so that our hope is that we will one day see all things made new. At this time, we live in the already, not yet, as the writer of Hebrews would say, at this time, we do not see all things put under his feet. But when Christ returns, the new creation will come in its fullness. On Thursday, we buried Kathleen. We mourn, but not as those who have no hope. We know that because Jesus rose again, she will rise again. And her body will not be like this body, needing pills to keep cholesterol down or to keep blood pressure down or to control diabetes. It's not going to be a thing in the new creation because the body that God will give us will be the body, the same body that Jesus had when he rose again. A glorious body. A body fit to stand before the King of kings, the Lord of glory, and not be consumed. We share in that privilege. We will enjoy God forever in the new creation. And that is the hope that enables us to persevere in the midst of this broken world. And please realize, this is the hope that we are privileged to hold out to the people around us. 
That's why Paul emphasizes we are ambassadors for Christ. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. God has entrusted to us the message, the ministry of reconciliation according to verse 18 and 19. We who are united with Christ through faith have the honor of representing him before the world around us. And certainly Paul is primarily referring to his apostolic credentials. But let us recognize that we share in that privilege. We too are agents of reconciliation, ambassadors for Christ. And so the challenge for you and me as a church is to embody that reconciliation in our midst. That's actually why Paul goes on in chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. See, he was challenging the Corinthian believers because their obsession with appearances was leading them away from the gospel. They were looking down on Paul. They were rejecting him as an apostle. And in rejecting Paul, they were rejecting God who had sent Paul. And so he was calling them to repent of their pride and be reconciled to Paul. Now, I'm glad that you're not rejecting me because I'm not Paul. <laughs> but we need to recognize that God's act of reconciliation Reconciling us to himself should result in reconciliation between his people. So let's get down and dirty here. Think of the people in church, in this church, perhaps in this auditorium, that you can't stand to look at because you have something against him or her. Think of the people in this church whom you avoid because they did you wrong 15 years ago or 15 minutes ago. I urge you, as your brother, as God has forgiven you in Christ, please forgive that person and seek to restore that relationship. That person is not going to change right away. Don't think that just because that person is confronted with a sin and apologizes to you for his wrong, or her wrong, that everything's going to be fine. I'm counseling two couples right now, preparing them for marriage. I tell them forgiveness is a process. And please understand, God has put these people who annoy you in your life so that you would understand more fully his unconditional love and faithful kindness that he is showing you daily. Because let's be, let's be frank about this. As much as you find somebody annoying, we can probably find two or three other people who find you annoying. And they are showing you grace. And frankly, God is showing you and me grace. And so we need to demonstrate that same grace that we receive. I know it's painful and uncomfortable. 
But the church is called by God, formed by God, to be a community of reconciliation. And we cannot afford to be passive. God's love moves us to act. That is the application of saying that we live for him who for us died and rose again. It is that compelling love of Christ that moves us to act. To display the beauty of restored relationships. In order to foreshadow the beloved community that God is bringing about. And as we foreshadow that beloved community then we can more faithfully represent Christ to the world around us. We are called to be ambassadors of Christ. But there are ugly ambassadors, those who browbeat people with our kingdom's superiority. Do things our way because we've got the power. That is not the way of Jesus. Notice verse 20. Notice the language of Paul. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. There's a humility, a passion, a love, a meekness and sweetness reflecting the character of Jesus who proclaimed the truth to the Samaritan woman and to the thief on the cross. That's the mindset we have as we proclaim the gospel. Because we trust our loving, sovereign God to use the beauty of our love for one another and for the people with whom we engage as we proclaim the gospel to draw people to himself. And you wonder, okay, RJ, you're a jerk. How do you do this? Well, The paradox of Paul's life was that the more he was gripped by the reality of Christ's continuing love for him, the more he understood his sinfulness. Second Timothy is his closing word, you might say. And he tells Timothy, I am the chief of sinners. And that realization, that humbling recognition drove him back to the cross more and more. And the same must be true of you and me. The more theology we know, the more we know of God, the more truth we understand, the more broken we must be over our sin so that Christ would become more precious to us. See, this, this brokenness over sin in light of the greatness of our God is what breeds the love and intimacy with Christ that moves us to tell others about Christ with passion and humility. Because you cannot help but talk about the one whose love is so amazing, can you? And that's how we become ambassadors of reconciliation. Salvation sends us out to lead others to hope in Jesus. It is a radical reversal. We who were enemies of God are now privileged to proclaim His excellencies. We receive grace beyond our wildest dreams. 
experience love beyond compare. And that love demands our lives and our all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you loved us before time began, fully knowing that we would rebel against you, that we would reject you. We thank you that the second person of the triune God became man so that he may die for us. We thank you that you made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh Lord, what a humbling reality to be loved by the sovereign Lord of the universe, knowing that even now, as your people, as your children, We are more like Adam than like Christ. We are still so full of ourselves, so resistant to your grace, so proud of our puny accomplishments, if you could call it that. But Father, we thank you that you love us with an everlasting love that will never let go of us, will never give up on us but that will never leave us the way we are. Father, we pray. We pray that you would cause your love to be shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit to grip us so that in recognizing our sinfulness, we would run to you. We would run to Christ for refuge and understand more fully how much you love us, that we may even be more gripped by that same love. So that like the apostles, we would say, we cannot but speak of the things that we have seen and heard to minister that love to our brethren, even when they sin against us, and to minister that love to those around us so that they may know him whom to know is eternal life. As we ask in Christ's name, for his sake, for his glory. Amen.